0: hello welcome and hello again to how to win friends and influenza a podcast all about the superb medical lives of doctors from various specialties I'm your host, Lily, and I talk to accomplished, exciting people so that you can absorb their wisdom. Life is filled with three-letter acronyms like FBC, CLP, ATO, GST, and serious things like that. But one of the most frightening for a patient and for a patient's family can be ICU. So today we have Dr. Stewart on the show to tell us about the fast-paced, high-intensity work he does as a very caring ICU specialist unit. Well, I just wanted to fit all the words of ICU in there. So welcome, Dr. Stewart.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Great to have you on the show. So let's begin by clearing up some confusion. So there are a lot of acronyms in this world, ICU, HDU, ED. What's the difference between all these places? Um,
1: So a lot of them are different parts of the hospital. The intensive care unit is a major part of the hospital where the sickest patients go. Uh, Often, some hospitals have a separate HDU, which is a high dependency unit, which is separate from the intensive care, either by the same uh, colleagues looking after them or different clinicians. Often, they're in the same actual environment, both ICU and HDU patients in the actual same area. The major difference is the nursing ratio required to look after these patients. An intensive care patient is normally a one-to-one ra- nursing ratio, and HD is normally one-to-two or one-to-three nursing ratio. And ED is a bunch of departments, a critical care area, a different part of the hospital, but often very close to the intensive care.
0: Alright, so let's get this hierarchy, well let's not call it a hierarchy, let's get this process right. So it's all under critical care, it's all about the really acute management of patients. So first they come into emergency in the hospital, and from there they might be sent to a higher care, so that would be HDU, and at the very top, the really life-threatening stuff, is that ICU?
1: Yes, it would be in most hospitals, yes.
0: Alright, and what sort of things would you see in ICU? So ICU
1: is predominantly a lot of organ support, so patients that require ventilation because of respiratory failure, Um, catecholamine support because of cardiac failure, or even cardiovascular devices like bloom pumps or ventricular assist devices, renal replacement therapy, um, nutritional support. It's mainly, or even a, a combination of all those organs which are failing at once. But also a misconception that ICU is all about organ support. It's still a place where ongoing diagnosis happens and management requires a definitive diagnosis. And we're part of that process too.
0: Yeah, now speaking of misconceptions, I'm sure there's scope for plenty because ICU is one of those really exciting areas that we see on TVs, movies all the time. I mean, no offense, but it's not often that we see an entire series based around a a GPE practice, although that would be pretty cool. So in ICU, in movies, you know, there'll be a lot of dramatic music playing, a lot of fast-paced activity. What is it like in real life?
1: Um, It can be very fast-paced. There's lots of alarms going off, lots of noise in there, it's a noisy place. One of the biggest complaints of patients is it is so noisy. That's a 24-7 place for things to happen. Patients get admitted any time of the day. Um, there's different parts. In the mornings, it's normally quite uh, controlled because there's the ward rounds going on with the intensive care team and different primary teams and allied Health also come and visit. In the afternoon, lots of post-operative um, business from theatre starts to arrive, but it can be interspersed by any acute admission at any point during the day. When the acute admissions come in, they can be uh, a bit resuscitated from emergency or the ward, or they can be getting worse and worse, which can get a bit noisy when the team tries to work out what they're gonna do next. So yes, it can be noisy, um, it can be very quiet at night sometimes when everyone's fast asleep. Patients do sleep in intensive care, proper sleep, Good. rather than just being sedated. Um, but yeah, it varies throughout the day.
0: Okay, and what attracted you to this exciting uh, specialty?
1: So I was speaking to the newly formed Sydney University Critical Care Society last Tuesday about this and um, the irony was that the one thing that really got me into intensive care or wanted to be in in intensive care is something I look back 20 years later and see very very differently. I I think back to when I was an intern at Wandsbeck Hospital in Northern England back in 1997 and there was a patient very sick with liver failure. And I was way out of my depth as an intern. I'd done my basic blood tests and chest X-rays. I took some blood cultures and phoned my senior. And they were encephalopathic and they were drowsy and becoming very, very hypotensive. And I called the um, the emergency team at the time. Um, the anesthetist who looks after intensive care in the UK, he walked in very cool, um, calm and collected, walked around, wasn't ruffled by all this drama. And um, my thought at the time was, this guy's really cool, he's really under control, it doesn't look ruffled, and why can't I be like this? I'm a very stressed out intern here. Um, there was other people there, uh, the medical consultant and the medical registrar, and the, the registrar sort of mentioned, yes, um, everything's fine here, the airway's under control, um, I'll leave you guys to it. And the, the medical team started to get a bit annoyed by saying, well, what do you mean leave us to it? This guy's really sick, and he goes, the airway's fine, just do your liver treatment and you know, sort it out. And I was thinking, oh, this guy even knows what to tell people. He's really, really cool. And that's what really inspired me, um, because I wanted to be able to handle things under pressure uh, and be useful in the hospital when patients became really sick. The irony is that twenty years later I look back on that and his judgment was very, very wrong. Um, the patient should have gone to intensive care. There's more to inten there's more to an intensive care than providing an airway. Uh, or even watching an airway, this guy required cardiovascular support, he required his ascites, draining and pro, you know, protein replacing, he required specific other therapies that couldn't be done on the wart and in the end he needed intubation for those things to actually happen. So the irony is that the guy that inspired me made a really bad judgment call but that's how I got into it in the first place.
0: Well, well actually what I really like about that story is taking the positive from the negative. Yes. I mean it's someone who probably in retrospect, wasn't a great role model, but you really took something from it, which shows us that we can learn something from good and bad doctors in a sense. Yes. So what do you think makes a good ICU doctor?
1: I think there's a, several things. There is um, humility um, to recognize that things will occur in your specialty that you don't know about. But that thing is very generic for any doctor, this integrity of doing things you know, in the right manner, not just the correct thing ethically, but then the right manner morally. That's once again generic. I think from an intensive care perspective, it's to recognize what your job is to do. Your job is to actually resuscitate patients that are sick, but also diagnose what is the underlying problem and try and manage that. And then actually work out, based on their background conditions, can it be managed? Because they're gonna get sicker whilst in intensive care. And then being very open and honest with families and patients and all the other teams, about what your thoughts are. I think a lot of the excitement that young people see in intensive care is all the resuscitation parts, the intubations, the central lines, the chest strains, and those sorts of things. Um, I can still do those, I still do those occasionally, but a lot of my time now is actually all the politics, the end of life care, discussion with families, and negotiation with teams. And that's one of the things I think is a really important aspect of a young doctor working out what they want to do with their career. Every speciality, I think, has exciting parts to it. But every speciality also has parts which are viewed as being very difficult and very problematic. For example, in emergency, lots of social dramas and lots of stress from social situations. Paediatrics, lots of stress from, fa- from parents and, and families. In intensive care, it's often seen to be the end of life discussions which are quite hard. Now, I don't enjoy those, but I don't mind doing those. And I think to myself, if I can't give the patient a good life, or we can't cure them, we'll give them you know, a reasonable death, a good death, with their family fully informed as to what's going on. So I think it's really a case of the parts of a speciality which are traditionally the parts that people don't like. If you actually do like those parts, and you warm to those parts, and you can excel in those parts, I think you've really found the speciality which is really, really right for you.
0: Yeah, And now you have mentioned some of this end of life stuff, which can be a whole lot of pressure. So how would you deal with those kinds of difficult situations?
1: At the time or afterwards?
0: Or has your approach changed? You can give us both answers. So
1: I've seen some very horrific things in my time. Um, and like any clinician, I've become desensitized to many. Um, when I speak to an end of life discussion with the family, I can see myself saying the same things, having my routine, things that I routinely do and discuss and say. Um, but I never lose the facts. I think I've recognized, I've never lost the fact of the sight that, sight of the fact that I say, this is really bad for this family. They're just going through a horrific time here. And although you can be desensitized, I think being dehumanized is something that you need to be wary of when you get uh, fatigued, compassion fatigued and exhausted from your career. And you know, every now and again, I do have a family meeting which, which really gets to me. Uh, and I, I start to feel myself, you know, wanting to have a, a little tear with the family, and you know, I feel, you know, very more empathy towards some than others, and that changes with your career and your life. For example, now when I have discussions, when I have young kids in the room, being a father myself, it's very very different uh, having those discussions with young kids there because I can see my kids at their age, and I, f- I find it very much more difficult. Whereas ten years ago, I didn't have that. Um, or I could recognize it's hard for the kids, it impacts me much, much more. Um, So at the time, I have a routine, which is very adaptable and very flexible, and it's all based around, I think, a few main things. Hearing what the patients and their family have to say, and really making sure they've been heard, or that they recognize they've been heard, but also being very open and honest with them. And if I don't know, I tell them I don't know. If I'm not sure, I tell them I'm not sure, but I give them. But in the meantime, this is what we're going to do. Here's what we'll inform you about. Here's how we'll keep in touch. Here's how we'll keep you updated. And I think that's what families need to know, that they've been listened to, and there's ongoing nice communication to actually work with them. Um, beyond the session itself, uh, and these discussions, they don't have to take half an hour. Uh, they can take two minutes by the bed space. A lot of the things which people families explored with when they come into intensive care, is that people haven't talked to them for so long because people are busy and they've got very, lots of things to do and they just want some open, honest communication. And, in, you know, seriously, in many situations, two minutes by the bed space of discussing the situation with someone's family can save you a four hour meeting down the track if you just tell them what's going on at an early stage before they lose trust and before they lose faith. Mm-hmm. Beyond the sessions themselves, uh, my, my family, uh, my biggest support is without doubt my wife who's also a clinical nurse unit manager in the intensive care and so she understands everything that goes on in there Uh, and also my colleagues from across the city. My wife is my biggest, my biggest resource to vent to and to work through things and even when she says, you know, actually I think you've seen that the wrong way or I think about it differently, you know, she can work out when I I might be feeling the pressure too much and I've I've misconstrued something or I've, I've picked up the wrong end of the stick.
0: Yeah, so it's always useful to have some outside supports. Absolutely. Although in your case, it's the best of both worlds. It's kind of inside support and outside as well. (laughs) Yes,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Now, it is really tough because when you're dealing with patients, you're also dealing with patients' families. So it's especially critical in ICU when there's more scope for these end-of-life discussions. What's the approximate ratio of good news stories progressing from ICU to somewhere else or recovery versus end of life stories?
1: So I think the end of life discussion is a special it's, it's skewed from a statistical perspective our mortality in Australian intensive cares is actually about 10% because the majority of people come through elective surgery, big elective surgery, and they go back to the wards and they're fine. A lot of people come in for a few days and get better and they go back to the wards. It's only you know a certain proportion of people who will stay longer than 7 days and a very small portion that stay longer than uh, you know a month and even a year in some situations. So the really difficult conversations that you have about people who are not progressing, um, they do happen commonly, but they're a small minority of the patients. A lot of people come in very, very sick very suddenly and you can't sort things out, you can't get them better and that's a very sudden end of life conversation. And that's very different because it's just overwhelming and we can't fix this and it's very much moved towards comfort measures very quickly. But the discussions where you're talking about this would be the long-term trajectory, what we have to try and achieve, um, they are the rare rare of the conversations. And one of the things that we still don't get from an intensive care perspective is many patients that leave intensive care, we still never see their good stories. We still never see them. um, When they leave, they often still look very bad and very, very Mm -hmm. sick. But every now and again we get people that come back six months later or a year later and we're amazed at some of the patients and how they've recovered and how they've done so well however there's also a group of people that go to the wards not looking so good and unfortunately continue to remain that way Um, and sometimes it's hard to predict which patients those are going to be.
0: And when it comes to delivering the big sort of scary news, do you have any specific tips? For example, should you just come right out and just break it and say, "You know, I'm sorry to say that this patient is not progressing, or you say it in a more human way, or do you say, I have some news, would you like to go sit down? How do you pad it out or how do you deliver it?
1: I think a principle that I use is you always have to forecast things, which means people have the ability to work it out for themselves. But you can forecast things in 10 seconds, or you can forecast things in a minute and a half. For example, if a patient came down to the intensive care and they were having CPR on admission from the ward, Mm -hmm. the family already knows that it's pretty bad. So when you go in and you say uh, they came to intensive care and as you saw we were doing cardiac massage, unfortunately, they know very quickly it's not going to be a good outcome. If you're talking about a situation where you're not quite sure what's going on, you might talk about we've had these abnormal chest x-rays which show this lesion on the x-ray we've got this abnormal blood test with these white cells which are very very strange the family is starting to think this is not good but you can't hang around forever and leave them hanging on a string you have to get the point and say some things Uh, and there's a very famous study a while ago about just the word dead or death Mm -hmm. that people if you don't say they have died they are going to die and euphemisms like they've passed away or gone to a better place in some people's words um they don't know what that means. Uh, they want to know, so are they going to die? And have just said passed away. You've got to be very, I think, not blunt, but direct in your words, and the word death, dying, I think they're very powerful words, and, and, and rightly so, and you shouldn't avoid them.
0: Yeah, and so the impression I'm getting of a good ICU doctor is someone who can be quite direct and quite honest without being terrible and mean about it, but also maybe quite efficient, quite organised, cool, under pressure. Yes. Are, are these words correct?
1: Yes, they are. I think they, they require those skills at different times. I think you can be direct with people and honest with them, but still very empathic. Mm. I think that's the whole point of the thing of the ethics versus the morals. The ethical thing is you should tell people open honestly, but the moral thing is to do it in the right manner and that can be very different for very different patients and i think you need a good amount of emotional intelligence to really try and work out what you think this family needs right now some families do want a very blunt to the point discussion get on with this we need to know some people need to take a bit of time to digest that and even then they may take more time And i think your job as a clinician is to work out what families need and one of the best ways of doing that is letting people speak to you first of all so they can sort of tell you, you know, where they are in their mindset, where they're coming from, and what they understand. And that way you can not actually get your information that you're gonna impart incorrect. Because incorrect messages at the very beginning, losing rapport and trust, mm. is very damaging for the ongoing conversation.
0: Yeah, now look, I'm gonna digress a little. We've been talking about end of life, but now I'm gonna start talking about Harry Potter. So in <laughs> Harry Potter, I hope this is not too much of a spoiler, but they say that the one chooses a wizard, so it's as though Harry Potter's already chosen. And with let's say the Lion King, again, block your ears if for some reason you haven't seen it. It's it's this idea that, you know, Simba's born into greatness. It's it's part of who he is and it's just come to him. But then we always like an underdog and we like the idea that you can learn skills. I mean, people go to medical school because they know nothing and they come out at the end being able to be a doctor. So there's a counter-argument of you can learn what you need. So philosophically, do you think uh, someone has the qualities already that make a good doctor for a particular specialty or do you think they can learn?
1: I think they do have some inherent qualities which will um, draw them towards a speciality and even different behaviours in regard to certain people. I mean, I am, uh, I, f- I think I'm quite outspoken, I'm quite direct in many ways, um, that works for me. I've got to sort of tailor it at some points, but something that can be more softly spoken or more reserved can equally get the point across to people in different, different guises. I think we all have to recognize what your strengths and weaknesses are and just modify your behavior for certain scenarios. I think intensive care, um, it does pick people, um, but like every speciality, it can pick the wrong people and it can also miss the right people. And I think that's a lot to do with um, the training schemes. You know, Exposure that you get to intensive care at medical school is often not as much as you'd want to have. The exposure you get doesn't really explain what intensive care is what the benefits are. You don't really get exposed to it in turn year. Some residents do. And before you know it, you're a PGY3, and you're making choices about your career with colleges, application forms, college fees, and exams to go through. And that's a big decision. And I think for some students to go into intensive care, they really may not have experienced it as it really is. Because every intensive care is different in every... In its own regard, it's got its own culture in every different part of the city, in every different state in Australia, and they will change every five or ten years with the people that actually work through. So we set up many trainees that are our senior registrars, so they're actually very senior in their training, but to become consultants, they don't only really pass their exams in that SR role; it makes them very, very happy. And so where they are at the time is a very happy place to be. Doesn't always mean it should be the place they want to be as a consultant because the skills that they've got may be very much aligned to a different intensive care. So I think yes you can pick the right, you can be picked for the right speciality for the right speciality, but we can miss people at the same time as well. The problem I think with training is just such a commitment too often in the modern medical workforce to choose your career so early, like PGY3 onwards and within two years you invested thousands of dollars in your training program. You've done maybe part, one part of the exam, and you feel that like you have to commit an ongoing finish this training program. But I know many specialists in many different specialities who you know are not happy in the career they chose, but they feel that they're trapped. This is goes for trainees too. They're trapped by their family, their mortgage, their school fees, their, their, school, their kids' their skills are going to. And to, to make a change is just too scary even though they've got 30 years of a career still to do. You know, you may choose intensive care as a career and it may be right for you, and if that is, then really well done to you. But if it's not, and there's plenty of reasons why it might not be, you have gotta be honest and say, is this really the career that is right for me? Because in many situations, and I've been a supervisor of training with many trainees, and there's been many a trainee, good trainee, for other specialities who've not worked, worked for intensive care and left and gone elsewhere, had very satisfying careers. That's a very hard call for them to make sometimes. And as a supervisor, it's our responsibility to really be honest and open about that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there is really an art in choosing a specialty, of course, because it's something so important for your life, but also that art of knowing whether you should continue with something or whether you should bow out, because if it's not for you, like you said, it's important to be honest with yourself.
1: And with medical students, you know, we have got a lot of very smart people that come here, very high achievers to bar of a speciality, you know, as mm. you phrased it, mm. it's exactly what people think. It's I've failed. I've failed at what I wanted to do. Rather, than might be able to say, well, actually, maybe this wasn't for me. I've got better talents that can be put to use in a different area. Um, and I think that's one of the the real difficulties of the, of the healthcare system driving people into specialities very very quickly, without giving them a chance to really experience what's around there. There's a lot of dogma out there, I think, about training programs. And people that are seen to be doing bits and bobs and different things, uh, often they're not committed, they're not actually thinking about their career, they're not career orientated. Um, I think a lot of people, majority of the ones that I speak to, that choose people, would say they like people who have actually seen different parts of the workforce, had different jobs, and then finally made a decision to go into this area, it's what suits me best. Because they know after trying different things out and being around different areas, this is the right career for me.
0: Yeah. So it's it's really interesting because everyone does make different decisions in the end but in one sense we have all made the same decision which is to go into medicine and I do think that as long as you're making a contribution doing something positive maybe the specialty while important isn't the biggest thing it's the fact that you've chosen to go into healthcare, whether you're a renal physician or an ICU physician well either way if you're making a difference that's a really great thing.
1: I, I agree and your career will change I mean I'm I graduated in 1997 and my first 10, 10 and a half years was all about achieving my consultant status going through my college exams um, and going through all the training that I had to do The next 10 years I've been looking at some postgraduate degrees got my PhD and my master's in qualitative health research, establishing my educational um, area with the university my research The next 10 years of my life is a different phase mm. I'll still be clinical but I'm going to be, I want to move much more in towards teaching and research and those aspects. And in 10 years time, in my mid to late 50s, I'll be getting towards the end of my clinical career. But it shouldn't be the end of my medical career. I should be looking at what happens beyond the time when my clinical work finishes. Many, many colleagues uh, in every speciality who work and learn to their 60s, and it's probably not the best thing. Plenty of evidence out there that in your, that sort of age, um, cognitively, you're not where you once were. Practically, you definitely probably are where you once were but you've got so much to offer the healthcare workforce, all the universities. We could make a much better uh, concert effort about helping career, not just young doctors, but mid-career doctors and mm-hmm. senior doctors work out where their careers go, when all they feel they've got is much more of their clinical work and nothing else. Because really, um, there was a time when cognitively and practically, you're probably a bit past that and need to recognize that
0: yeah and so what we can take from that is that change is going to happen and it's probably better to embrace it than to be scared of it and when we get to the issue of doctors being let's say past their prime to put it one way crudely one of the issues there is often that their identity is tied to being a clinician and so a healthy way to deal with that can be to have a lot of hobbies outside medicine yes and so um for you dr stewart what do you like to do outside icu outside the wards
1: Apart from being the best husband I can, <laughs> hopefully Kathleen, and uh, looking after my three kids because they're eight and seven and five and they're very busy with activities. Um, I was always a big swimmer. Uh, one of my ambi- one of my missions was swimming the Channel, which I completed last year Amazing. and raised about twelve and a half thousand dollars for our uh, post ICU discharge clinic at the Hospital. Um, but now I've got into ocean swimming. Now the Channel's been done and my wife's into it as well, and that's what's really important because we really enjoy doing together. It's it's really invigorating to get into that um, the cold water and the natural feeling of the waves going backwards and forwards and just the, the isolation away from all the hub, hubbub and buzz of the city and I, I really really enjoy that now. There was quite a lot of pressure going for the Channel Train last year, but now that's done, I really enjoy that. And also now getting to my kids' hobbies. My older son Ryan's into tennis. I've always loved tennis, but haven't played it for many many years. But now I'm getting into tennis, so I can play with him. They'll probably beat me in a few years. But that's fine, <laughs> but yeah. So I think it's very sport orientated, but also a lot of family things. Uh, we love doing things as a family, especially holidays and trips out. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that balance between your work and your and your life is really 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 important. Although we discussed earlier mm. that whole work life <laughs> balance thing, you know, I've got my opinions on that. Um, you know, I am a doctor, um, clinician, and academic at work. But I'm also that when I'm at home. And there's a great quote by um, a female surgeon how she said that surgery and or her actual being a mother doesn't determine her life, doesn't define her life. Mm-hmm. She's a better surgeon for being a mother and a better mother for being a surgeon. And that's the sort of way that I feel about my career as an intensive care specialist. I think it makes me a, a better father and a better husband. But also being a father and husband uh, makes me a better intensive care specialist. And the two are intertwined and I know that if I go to parties or you know occasions or presentations, because I've I am what I am. I'm a doctor and I've got knowledge. There's things that I won't say to certain people, in certain contexts because not the right thing to do, or the right thing to discuss. And I probably do behave differently because of who I am. And I think that's appropriate to some degree. I don't think you can fully separate your work and your life. They're parts of both. And as this famous female surgeon said trying to separate them part, both and make them opposing forces is doomed to failure and will make you frustrated. You are who you are and you have to combine them in all aspects of your life.
0: Yeah, and I've heard you speak a number of times, Dr. Stewart, and you've got a really big interest on um, in the personal professional development side of things. Yes. But I think my favorite philosophy from you overall is this idea that you are who you are kind of 24-7 because it's not realistic to think you're a doctor and you're, you know, in quotation marks, a good person when you're in the hospital, but let's say, on the weekends you go out and commit crimes or do something like that. You you have to live with yourself 24 hours a day. The only time you don't live with yourself is when you're asleep and maybe not conscious and you're <laughs> dreaming about flying. Yes. <laughs> so the idea is really that you are who you are all the time and of course in some ways you are representing the medical specialty all yes. the time even yes. if you are at a barbecue outside hours people will still see you as a doctor and so yes. if you do something terrible it could erode trust for everyone
1: and of course when you're with your very close friends who know you very well you like differently if you're a place where you've never been before mm-hmm. and people don't know who you are and that's like any human being i think uh, but i think it's acceptance of you, you exactly you are who you are it's all part of you I need to be yourself at all times.
0: Mm. And I guess you are the sum of all the various little bits you are. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah okay now do you have any examples of when let's say your morals or your ethics were tested and how you maintain the strength to you know to live with your values because I imagine as a doctor there are times when people are tested how can they come out with the best result? Um,
1: I think the best example here is we're giving this to a lot of doctors that are trying to work out their ideas of where they go in the future. I think when you're an intern, you're tested every single hour of the day and every single day of the year. And it's the simple things which really test your moral philosophy. Um, And also it's tied into your clinical acumen at the same time. It would be so easy to actually see a patient, not talk to them, do a very superficial examination, not read the notes because you're so time pressured and move on or in a way fob them off with a false excuse for why you can't do something why they haven't seen anything because if you try and say a few buzzwords they might just think oh it sounds really impressive they'll keep quiet and they'll get you back and you can get your time optimised I think you're in moral conflict all the time as you're developing your future careers because the time pressures and the stress of the job can make you do things that aren't the integrity and the humility that you might want to have at all points. And tied up to clinical context, you know, if you see a patient on the ward and they actually have got low urine output, you've been called to see them, and you think it's fluid overloads, and you give them some furosemide, and you come back an hour later, and they've passed 25 mils from 15, it hasn't worked. You give them 80 milligrams, it's now 45 milligrams, it's now 45 mils an hour, all you've done is shift the patient from the calling criteria to being sick, of say, for example, 0.5 months per kilogram, to a criteria they don't get referred to. If you walk away and say, well, actually, the urine output's fine now, you're deluding yourself. After 80 years of fluid mind, you think this patient's got fluid overload, it's not working. Your treatment's not working, or you got the diagnosis wrong. And therefore, you've got to spend some more time and work out what's really going on. And that requires time and effort. Those are the real, I guess, the moral conflicts that I think you have the minute you start your career because you're under so much time pressure. It's easy, and we discussed about rationalisation and um, how you frame things in your mind to actually make sense of things, um, and that's called attributive error, where the person that comes from the local bus stop, who's normally drunk, this time they normally get put onto a, a bench in the ED, and allowed time to wake up, but this time they've got some abnormal neurological signs, but that might require a CT, might require intubation, giving someone a phone call at four in the morning, it's easier to say they're probably just drunk again and leave them. But obviously this time it's something else. I mean, these are the things that I think junior and senior doctors really struggle with. Rather than the huge ethical dilemmas that we talk about, like organ donation, which obviously I'm part of, um, these are the things in your personal life which you'll grapple with on a daily basis. Yeah. Doing You're doing your job well. It's hard.
0: Yeah. I guess they're tough because it's more of a gray area. It's a small area where yes. firstly maybe no one's watching, so it's completely up yes. to you to do it. And it's what you do when no one's watching that shows whether you're doing the right thing or not. Yes. You know, but with the big things like, you know, don't kill people, don't steal, like they're quite obvious. We have clear rules and social guidelines yes. on those. When it's something small like that when no one knows, I guess that's it's when we It's still moral fiber. Yeah. Yeah. And so we hope that I guess that you passionate enough about patient care that people have enough integrity to try and do the right thing
1: yeah I mean I get phone calls at three in the morning uh, from my junior staff in the hospital and it's obvious that they're struggling and I could turn over and just go to sleep and think, i I'm sure they'll, they'll get through I'm sure they'll be fine and do a reasonable job but my job is to be a consultant they're a registrar they're not even near their training uh, end of training and they're after patients which are out of their sphere to look after, but trying to do the best job that they can. Um, I got to get out of bed and go and give them a hand. Even if everything's been done, there's nothing more that I can add, and the patient's deteriorating, I should go there and be with them when this happens. It's easy to just say, oh, they can take care of that, I'll leave them to it. The right thing to do is just say, no, I must go and help them. Even though it's three in the morning and I'm exhausted, that's what my job is. And that's what I'm there for.
0: So it's about doing the right thing, not the easy thing. And that's obviously yes. what gives you the strength to swim the English Channel. Yeah, it's, a,
1: it's the right thing in the right manner at the right time. Yeah, And I think in any part of life, you come to those crossroads where you have two paths to take. And there's an easy one and a hard one. And normally the the, um, the right path to take is usually the hard one. Yeah, And that's, and that's ex- why it's yeah. hard, yeah.
0: Excellent advice for people in general, even yeah. if you're from a different medical special, even if you're not in medicine, it's just... Yeah, it's yes. just really good life advice. You know why
1: it's hard, you don't want to do it, but you know it's the right thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we have been talking about junior doctor years and training a little bit, so what is the training like in ICU?
1: Um, it's very structured. There's a very good six year training program with very specific areas of how much intensive care, how much anesthesia, how much medicine, where the exams are, what projects you have to do. So that's very clear. It's, in Sydney, it's not centrally based or New South Wales Wales, should I say, in Queensland you go through a central repository where you get put to certain places. Mm -hmm. So you do choose your own hospital in New South Wales, but you do with the college programme. And it's very, and most hospitals will have a very similar training structure for year one, two, three, four, five, six registrars and senior registrars. Um, Most uh, intensive care trainees do go through a shift system, which is like a week of days, a week off, a week of nights, 12 hour shifts, a week off. And that can be beneficial for some people uh, who've, you know, single, want to go and do things in the meantime, in between. Um, got families, so and the response it's much, much harder to do. Uh, it is very tiring, I think, and I think I've got four or five of those shifts. I'm not quite sure how much the trainees actually benefit from doing the whole seven, seven days but there's other considerations that to think about, for example, rostering for the whole hospital and how things people are paid, which do influence how rosters get made. But it can be quite intense. It's good for doing work sometimes if you can make sure your week off is good towards your exam preparation and your weeks when you're on. Not much you can do apart from get your clinical work done, but you should, as long as you can try your time and say, I'm a week of days, I'll try and reinforce my clinical learning this week, and week off, I'll do my book work and try and work out and have a bit of a life at the same time. So very structured, but I've got to say I've did about three or four years of weeks of nights and weeks of days, and it, it was exhausting. Oh. And I, I feel for the trainees going through, because I think seven days on and seven nights on is not good for them, and probably not good for the patients either. I think a better model of four or five days on, but that's hard to fix into rosters and weeks mm-hmm. of pay, is probably a much more better model for, for overall patient care.
0: Yeah, what about at the end of the training? Does it change or will you forever be doomed to this life of night shifts? I
1: I think um, when you get towards your senior years as SRs and fellows, it's actually a more intense roster. You might do uh, one every three weeks clinical, but you're on call for that whole week with the consultant. So you might take four out of seven nights as the call for your consultant. Um, But you do work intensely for a whole week and that is hard. You don't get weeks off in between. You often do weeks of either admin or teaching or research in between. So that's exhausting. I think some of those advanced trainee slash fellow slash um, senior, senior registrar jobs are some of the hardest jobs and in, in clinically work uh, wise often harder than consultant jobs because of the intensity of what you do. But you haven't got the other responsibilities that consultants have regards to teaching and research after another the local departmental admin at the same time after your weeks. So it's pretty hard, and I do think that even as a consultant, you do do weeks on call. We're on call for seven days straight, 24 hours a day, and you would work you know, Monday to Sunday uh, between 8 o'clock and 4 in the afternoon and be on call every single night with your other colleagues that would be taking some of those calls for you. And I think it's only inevitable uh, in the near future, maybe in my clinical lifetime, maybe not. <laughs> I hope not, but and that's probably best for patients. that intensive care specialists will be sleeping in the hospital at some point when they're on call. Some hospitals in Sydney already have consultants doing evening shifts and evening rosters have been available. I think it's only a matter of time. Because the need to respond very quickly to deterioration from a senior level, I think that's going to become um, the norm in, in most places.
0: Have you ever been in a situation where there's not enough staff or not enough equipment? And you know, patients are deteriorating. Yep. What would you do with that?
1: So uh, the best example of that was when I was in the UK in the um, the flu season. We had a um, you know a, a ten bed intensive care at Sunderland, which became eighteen. Well, I had three patients in recovery ventilated went to be transferred out to, to intensive cares across the north of England. We have the same problem as Australia, not to the same extent. We have much more resources, but we end up transferring patients in some situations for upgrades of care because they can't provide care at certain areas or because you have got no beds that'll be transferred out from EDs, or transferred because from the wards or recovery because you really cannot accommodate. Not in their best interest, but you've got to make judgment calls sometimes. Um, yeah, I think it is. It, it does happen. It does happen. It's The resources aren't as bad as they are in other parts of the world. We're quite well resourced here. Um, but the demand for intensive care is increasing amongst patients and society and hospitals, especially the... The lower level intensive care, like high dependency and close observation, that's increasing massively. But intensive cares are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, we've got 52-bed intensive cares at some big intensive cares across the city. And that's an, another problem for for departments, when you've got 20 consultants and collegiality and working together, knowing who your consultants are and who's around each week, having four different pods of mm. intensive care patients being looked after at the same time and hand them over to someone else at the weekend, brings its own uh, problems. But yeah, we have got good resources, we really have.
0: Okay, and what sorts of areas do you think trainees should focus on? Is it a very procedural specialty? Should they focus more on their communication, on learning their physiology?
1: I think when they go through their first lot of exams, they're very focused on pharmacology and physiology and physics and things like that. And that's appropriate. Uh, You need to know those very, very well, but they've got to tie it to their clinical um, experiences. You've got to really make it clinically relevant. And the exams are very much designed to help trainees do that. I think communication, is by far and above the most important thing. Because um, after a while, I'm not saying the intensive care medicine becomes easy, but it can become quite routine in a place that you'll recognize that and you've been part of for many, many years. You can't keep up with your speciality because things do change, but a lot of the difficult things that you're gonna have more than anything is um, communication issues with patients, with families, and in many situations um, with colleagues, disagreements, uh, both clinical and departmental, can be very draining. I think the communication aspect there is very, very important. You can communicate quite clearly as to what you're thinking, because that can be very hard and draining.
0: All right, and what's your biggest piece of advice for anyone considering ICU?
1: Um, be honest with yourself. Be yourself and see what the intensive care um, really means, and see if it fits and aligns with the person that you are. And then think to yourself, can I see myself doing this? for 40 years of my life. Uh, maybe not all clinically, but in certain aspects of that intensive care, 40 years of this area of specialty, uh, because it can be very draining. And if you if you can, and you really want to, my advice is go for it. You know, It's a great specialty, it's very rewarding. Uh, I wouldn't change my choice if I had to go back many, many years, but that's me. Many of my other colleagues that I know from across the city and across the country, they would change their actual decision and would advise junior trainees not to go into intensive care medicine for their own personal reasons. But I think the biggest issue is if you're interested, maybe you should try it and give it a go and see if it's right for you. But more importantly, work out how you're gonna make yourself aware that it's not right for you and be prepared to change if that is the case. And, okay. You've got 35 okay. years of your career still.
0: Yeah, what about the opposite? Rather than going in straight away and potentially changing, what about going into ICU later? Does that ever happen?
1: I think some people do, and they're normally people who have gone through other specialties. A lot of emergency medicine trainees have gone into intensive care recently, um, and there's many reasons for that. But I think it's a good thing because they've really tried one speciality, normally for a while, worked out it's not for them, for whatever reasons they are, and they've had a good time to look around the rest of the hospital or the community and work at well, what do i want to do instead mm. and they've made very solid career choices and most people that i know that have changed mid-career to intensive care have made the right choice and been very very happy with that
0: yeah and i think one of the really big messages here is that it's important to be genuine, to be yourself and to know what you want and not have to fool yourself into going for something if you no longer want it or or don't want it. Because in the end, the biggest commitment we've made is to be in medicine. And so this is time to whip out a story I've been saving for a while. It comes from um, an excellent motivational speaker and author called Rory Vaden. So the story is that There's a man called Bob standing at the urinal uh, looking forlornly down and I have to say I'm not an expert in urinals so (laughs) please forgive me if none of this is correct. But there's a man called Bob staring down at the urinal uh, looking quite sad. His friend Jim walks in, looks at Bob, looks down at the urinal and sees a $5 note embedded in the urine there and he says, oh mate, yeah that's a tough one. Are you going to reach in there (laughs) and take out the $5 note or not? So what Bob does is something very, very surprising. Takes out his wallet, pulls out a $50 note, and throws the $50 note into the urinal next to the $5 note. Jim is flabbergasted, asks, why, why would you do that? $5 in there was bad enough. And Bob says, well, I wasn't just gonna put my hand in there for $5, was I? (laughs) So the idea is that he's made a commitment for himself. He wouldn't do it for $5, but he would do it for $55. And that just shows us how powerful commitment can be. Yes. So it's powerful because if you really want something, you can make yourself have good habits. You know, you can commit to doing a dieting program, a personal trainer at the gym, but at the same time, you can feel stuck if you commit to something for the wrong reasons. For example, locking yourself into a specialty when the true goal is just to make a difference in medicine, not to be a particular organ doctor. Yes. So commitment is a very powerful thing and another um, argument you could make is our commitment to integrity is one that we should not yes. shake. So there are good commitments and bad commitments. I would
1: agree, fully agree.
0: Yeah, and so finally, uh, to end this excellent wisdom that we've been draining from you, Dr. Stewart, what's your biggest piece of life advice to doctors in general?
1: I think a lot of it goes back to the sort of things that we've actually um, touched on already. Um, to be in medicine, you have—it's a privilege. It's an amazing opportunity, and you will share people's stories. And real life stories are always more amazing than science fiction. Uh, and you're part of people's stories, part of people's lives. You should never ever forget that privilege that you've been given, and um, always treasure the ability to be part of that actual—that workforce. The best advice is. It's almost back to the the things I think make great doctors and in reality, great people, um, you know, never lose your integrity, always maintain your humility and always see things, um, in the context of what they are. Things never usually are black or white in this situation. Horrible phrase these days, shades of gray, (laughs) but it is, you know, you need to apply context both in your clinical lives, and your personal life to everything that you do. Um, and also, stand up for what you believe in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard when you get past medical school and you're in the senior ranks of hospitals. Things aren't perfect in the hospital system. They're far from perfect, and we all know that. And lots of people know that. Um, I think it's hard to maintain the drive to want to make a difference. And if you're losing the drive to want to make a difference, work out why and reinvigorate yourself. Because the minute good people start to turn down and say, okay, this is too hard, we're not gonna try, then things do go a lot worse. Yes. Stand up for what you believe in, always.
0: I think there's a, a quote, something along the lines of, evil is not the only evil, apathy is like the enemy of good. Yes. Something like that. But good
1: men do nothing, yeah. or good women do that's nothing. That's it, that's it,
0: Yes. absolutely. So the advice that I would give is be a good person, be a good healthcare practitioner and listen to podcasts like this one.
1: Be nice to people and smile.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stewart, for your time. You've given us some excellent insights into ICU and how we can try and be more integrity filled people. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. We'll see all our listeners on the next episode.